Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. Thank you for joining the Y87 podcast and today's episode featuring Sonia Baker. During our conversation, Sonia talks about a piece of music she sang while she was in the Yale Glee Club, and we found a copy of that. So stay tuned to the end of the episode where you can hear about Sonia's recollections about the Glee Club, this piece of music, and you can listen to it. Without further ado, here's our episode. And welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With us today is Sonia Baker. Sonia, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, so what are you up to these days? Where do you live and what are you doing? I live in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, and I am teaching voice these days. Where? At James Madison University. So I'm at a mid-sized public institution, and I've had most of my academic career in, um, actually all of my academic career in teaching in public institutions. So what kind of voice do you, is it classical? Is it, what kind of music do you, you mostly focus on? It is mostly classical, although it's essentially classical foundation that we singers believe you can use in any kind of genre. So I certainly have music theater majors as well. We have music industry students who may go into, you know, pop music, who knows, R&B, hip hop. But we sort of feel like if you learn the, the basic technique you can then take it into anything. It's like dance always starts with ballet. So we always start with classical singing. So that's mostly what I spend my time on. Great. So let's talk about your journey to get to Yale. I know you lived in New Haven as a child. What was your journey to the university like? I did. It was really interesting because we had moved from New Haven when I was in going into eighth grade. My father was the first African-American law professor at Yale Law School. And I know he tells this, he told this great story about he was working in, in a law firm in New York City and the judge he had clerked for got a call from Guido Calabrese who said, Hey, we're looking to hire an African American. And so Dean Calabrese called up my dad, said, are you interested? My dad said, I, I actually don't have time to come talk to you. (laughs) I'm so busy on the rat race here. And Guido Calabrese said, I'll come to you. And apparently he came to our apartment in Riverdale. And I was a young toddler and said, would you like to see my room? And he said, sure. And he went in there to see my room. And my parents looked at each other and said, what is happening here? (laughs) The dean of the (laughs) Yale Law School is looking at our daughter's room. Um, But what happened was that my dad said, oh, this is somebody who values my family and who understands that I value my family. And in an effort to have more time with his family, he changed careers and started teaching at Yale, did not receive tenure. And I always talk about how Yale did not tenure an African-American law professor until we were all students at Yale and Stephen Carter got tenure. Many, many years later. Yeah, exactly. So what did your parents feel like when you decided to go to Yale? Did they talk to you about it? Yeah, it was funny. I give my parents a lot of credit because they did not talk to me about 
their feelings about New Haven, of course, my dad not getting tenure there, and they're moving there right after Kingwin Brewster opened the doors to the Black Panther Party and a lot of upheaval at that time. But some of my parents' best friends still lived in New Haven, and they knew that I could be cared for <laughs> by Jim and Effie Thomas, and they just shepherded me off, and they were delighted, I think, that they had the first Ivy Leaguer in the family. It is sort of rare in a lot of ways because all four of my grandparents all went to college, <laughs> which is not that common for anybody, but really not that common for African-Americans, right? Yeah, especially for children like us who are, well, we're not children anymore, but we were born in the 60s. Right. So yeah, it was a different time. Right. Not all my grandparents went to college. Yeah, two of my grandparents got master's degrees. Wow. <laughs> yeah, very crazy. One from the Wharton School of Business. It, it's crazy. So sometimes people sometimes people assume they've made the assumption that somehow I would be a first-generation college student just because I'm Black. And I, I was like, no, it, that actually couldn't be further from the truth. I definitely was expected to go to college. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, my grandmother on my mother's side, my maternal grandmother met my grandfather at college. I actually have their yearbook from 1921, which is literally 100 years ago. Yeah. But that set a tone in our family. Yeah. Because my grandmother, Krauss, was a formidable woman, and she was not going to have any of the girls in the family be second to anyone. Did the educational attainment of your grandparents set a tone for you and your family? Certainly. I mean, I just think there was there was this expectation that I would go to college, that I would go to a good college. I graduated high school from a public school in Indiana, and so I was not in a school where you thought everybody was bound for a, a very competitive college necessarily. But I had spent my junior year in high school in New York City in a private school. And that's where the headmaster of St. Anne's School had recommended Yale, you know, the Ivy League schools where I, I looked at him like he was from Mars at that point. <laughs> I was like, let's, can we talk about schools I can get into? <laughs> sure. What was it like to then for you to go to Yale as someone from Indiana, maybe at a school that where educational attainment wasn't the thing for everyone? Like, was yeah. that a huge culture shock? It was really intimidating for me. Really intimidating. I remember hearing in the first week that 50 some odd of our colleagues had come from the same prep school. And I thought, oh my gosh, they already have friends. They already have some idea why they're here. And I actually sent away for a transfer application to another school at the beginning of my sophomore year because I just thought, I don't know that I can do it. I don't know that I belong here. And did that change, that feeling change? It did. And in large part, I think, because I found a really good singing community at Yale. I had a lot of friends who didn't sing. <laughs> they weren't my only friends. But I had a place where I really felt like I belonged suddenly. And so I was, I mean, at the time, the Yale Glee Club only admitted sophomores and above. And I was in the Glee Club. And that's a large group of people singing. I was also in something extra, a cappella group. And I'd been in there my first year. And so I just had started to settle into a nice extracurricular life. I also changed. I mean, like at so many people, I came to college thinking I'd major in one thing. I thought I was going to major in biology. And after my first year, I said, well, that's not it. <laughs> I don't know what is. I don't know what is, but that ain't it. <laughs> and I'd taken one American studies class my first year and thought, 
I really liked that. Let's see what some more of those classes seem like. And that's what I ended up majoring in. So I settled in a little bit. How did you go from being a biology major to an American studies major who likes singing but can't read music to becoming a professor of music? Yeah, that's a that's a stretch. So I gave a full recital in four languages without any academic credit my junior year of college and my senior year of college. And by my junior year of college, when I'm just thinking about practicing all the time, at the end of that, in the summer, where you think, well, college is about to be over, what am I going to do next? <laughs> I finally realized maybe I should go where my brain was going. And it was really clear that my attention was going towards the music, that I was thinking about what I wanted to do with music, and I'd have to go practice to work that out before I could finish the paper for American Studies or whatever. And so there I was with no, not even having had, you know, Music 101 or any keyboard or any of that, applying to music schools in my senior year of college. And so I had to have some place that could understand that I was at graduate level in some way and undergraduate level in another way. And I ended up at Indiana University, which was uh, really one of the best music schools in the world, really, for voice. I am about to say, that's a pretty <laughs> impressive music school. So it's not like you went to a, a remedial school. <laughs> right. But it turned out it was my backyard because that's actually where my father was teaching at that point. So I had graduated high school in Bloomington, Indiana. Wow. So I ended up at this great music school in an in-state tuition and taking undergrad courses, overlapping them with graduate remedial courses, because of course I knew nothing, and finishing a master's degree in three and a half years, basically. I was lucky. I had some other skills. I mean, I had had a fair amount of acting, I had good language skills. I started being tutored in French when I was a kid, and then I took Italian in college. And so of the, the standard singer languages, German was the only one I was lacking. Wow. But I, I just had a lot to catch up on at this major opera school. <laughs> and so how have you evolved as a singer over the years? Because I know you still sing classical music, but you don't just sing classical music. It's true. You know, I went into voice originally thinking I wanted to do musical theater. And musical theater, when we were teenagers, was moving more towards rock pop. And that, that definitely is not where my voice was moving, mm -hmm. which may be part of how I ended up in opera. But it meant that I still had that love of musical theater, that love of cabaret, started singing a little more jazz music. And I sing a fair amount of late 20th century and now 21st century art song, classical kind of music. And that always brings in a variety of genres. I love the interdisciplinary work. So if I can bring in spoken word or visual arts or dance in some way, I love to do that kind of work as well. And I just think, you know, every artist evolves over time and matures over time and your worldview and your experiences all become part of who you are as an artist. So that's part of how I've evolved as a singer. So has this evolution that you've just described ever resulted in you revisiting works that you performed years ago with a new perspective? Oh, yeah. And there are things, there are things also that I find that I can't sing at any given time, depending on what you're going through emotionally. Right. Even my senior year of college, I was auditioning for grad schools, one of my arias was My Man's Gone Now from Porgy and Bess. And I was studying with Lily Chikazian, whose husband died. And I thought, I'm not taking that into a lesson to her. <laughs> right, right. I, I can't yeah. do it. 
you know? And at some point she said, I think you need to sing that aria for me. And I was like, okay. But for me, she needed to be ready for it. Right. And as I say, like there are different times in, in my life where I've thought, oh, that is too close or I'm ready to go back to that because I have a life experience that I think I can bring to that in a different way. So yeah, that's one of the gifts of going back to music that you've sung for a long time. Often people think, are you just being lazy because you already know it? Like, no, I actually now really know it. <laughs> right. I really know something else to bring. And when you're a professor of music and you're studying classical music, especially in 2021, how do you think about the canon as a professor, as an academic, and who wrote it, how it was written, and what is even worthy of being in the canon? Yeah, I think about the canon a lot. Most of my experience was outside of the canon through all of my study, right? Mm -hmm. I don't remember a single voice teacher handing me something by an African-American composer to sing. I had to see or an African out. composer or yeah, an Asian right. composer <laughs> or from a different continent. Oh, like there's like two continents and the canon is a pretty distant second from Europe. Or a female composer. <laughs> oh, true. I mean, just really, I never, I got all male composers mentioned to me. So my recording that I've done, I've got another one that's in the, in the can to finish, but the one that is out is all art songs by American women composers. And it was inspired by Libby Larson, who heard me sing a piece of hers, who said, oh, I think you ought to record that. And then I just started thinking, well, what I'd like to record are American women, because there were some African-American women and just American women that I really wanted represented. And so I know that if there aren't recordings, <laughs> if there's not sheet music, it's never going to be part of the canon, right? It's just not going to happen. I have always tried to include for my students repertoire that is outside of traditionally represented people in the canon. And this semester for the first time, last year, in the wake of 2020, the students, of course, were really hungry for expanding the canon. And this semester for the first time, I looked at them and I said, your list, your list of repertoire you have to know is going to be composed of no more than half of whom are dead white men. <laughs> and I just said, we're going to have to, we're going to work for that. You might have to go looking for where to find the sheet music or where to find recordings, but let's do it. And I've called it expanding the canon the whole time. I'm also working with National Association of Teachers of Singing with a committee talking about how we teach art song courses so that we expand the canon so that it's more inclusive. So yeah, I'm really committed to this. Where do people who are just listeners, because I can't, I've paid for many years of piano lessons, but other people have taken them. So, um, <laughs> which right. has been a, a great gift in our house to have so much music. But as someone who just likes to listen, where can people go to hear exciting new voices, exciting new writers, or maybe performances of writers who published long ago, but we just haven't really heard? Yeah, I mean, I think there are, are lots of places to go that have gotten more attention because of some of the racial reckoning, right? So the African-American singer, classical singer community has gotten a lot of attention. LA Opera did a great Zoom session with some of my colleagues talking about what it was like to be Black in the world of opera. And so all of those people who were on that broadcast have gone on 
to represent Blacks in the field in a nice way. So, I mean, I would say look for those singers, look for Lawrence Brownlee, look for Karen Slack, look for Kenneth Overton, look for, you know, these, there, there are a whole bunch of singers that I could name, but there's also the African American Art Song Alliance, which is a great website, which will tell you a bunch of composers. And I always tell students if you're looking for things to sing, you kind of just find something you like and then you go down the rabbit hole, like the YouTube rabbit hole, right? So if you really like Janae Bridges in this recording, then you see, what else did she sing? Oh, are these songs by African-American composers? I like this one in particular. Let me look for some more William Grant still. Or, hmm, she's singing with Will Liverman. He's amazing. Let me see. His recording is actually all African-American art songs. And so I think the YouTube rabbit hole actually helps for that. Oh. And and the Spotify rabbit hole, it's... um. I don't know. The recommendations on there aren't always as clear for me, but I love the internet for that reason, right? I had none of that. (laughs) So are there places that are starting to emerge post-pandemic for really exciting live performances? I think there's a desire, at least I've seen it like in my town, a desire to have smaller groups of people listen to music. There's a town event where there were bands, like people like fought about the tickets so like rabid dogs. They just were hungry <laughs> for live music. Yeah. Well, I mean, people are just hungry for live music post COVID, right? And just right. having missed that whole experience and realizing that the screen is not enough for us. That everybody sort of figured out the value of a live performance, I think, once they didn't have them. I think that's right. I'm not sure that I know. I think you're right that the sort of the small venue is really popular. And so I'm not sure I necessarily know what that is. I think that that's happening all over the country in some really interesting places. And I think we'll we'll have to wait and see what kind of bubbles up. And the problem is, of course, it'll have to move from small to large for everybody to know about it, Right. Yeah, or get captured on YouTube or other places, and then people start to hear, are there sort of going back to the European salon or that kind of idea to perform chamber music or other classical pieces in smaller groups? Yeah, and I just saw, I mean, I just saw a New York article about Devon Tynes and a group of people that he's meeting with that like, includes dancers and composers. And so there are also these small collectives that are trying to create music and create art in different ways. And I think that just takes time, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're not going to have those people get together and then have a recording out for you in six months. So I also feel like in the next five years, we might see those collaborations in broadcast format in some way or another, which ought to be really exciting. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. So take us to the stage for a minute. You're on the stage, you're singing with a group or by yourself, doesn't matter. Are there moments where you look out into the audience and you know you're connecting? The music is moving you, it's moving them. Do you have ever have that kind of moment? Yeah, because of course there's an energy of everybody in the live space. I don't have it by looking at the audience. I have it 
actually usually by really being in the moment myself. Mm-hmm. So when I'm singing, I try to create a world I'm inhabiting where I'm narrating in some way or another. And I try to be fully in that world. So then I'm not cognizant of the audience at all. And it's usually the moment when you finish, when you feel how the audience is responding to that, depending on how you finish. My favorite moment is the moment when you finish and there's just silence. And as long as you hold that world, nobody applauds. (laughs) And it's the best feeling on earth for me. (laughs) It's not even the applause. It's the, oh my gosh, we're all in the world together. I know I connected then. So that's usually when I feel that the most. It's really beautiful. It must be like a split second of like, how do you capture that? I don't, that must be something you always search for. It would seem to me, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a stage performer. I don't know. Yeah. It is something I always search for. I always hope that they're that drawn in that they don't let go until you let them go. (laughs) I see. I see. So you're not just a singer, but you're also a professor too. Mm -hmm. How has your experience in academia impacted you as an artist or your life as an artist impact your life as a teacher? How do they interrelate? Well, so here's the interesting part. I was a professor and then also an academic administrator. And so I was an academic administrator and teaching mm-hmm. halftime, both for six years, and then an academic administrator entirely for five years, and just returned to full-time teaching after five years in administration. And I would say all of that impacts how I sing. I think about my singing, of course, anybody who teaches anything, has to think about their process so much more as they try to articulate that for somebody else. But I also feel like my world as an academic, managing the larger machine of education and public education and wanting to impart something along the way, not always Mm -hmm. sure what it is exactly, is actually in so many ways much more motivating for me than my, my singing per se. Because I look at my students... And I always say, you might not sing at all when you leave here, but I I want you to be a better person for having studied voice. Has your experience as an academic administrator or professor changed your view on what education should be, can be, or is? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're in a really tricky place in higher ed, especially. And I think that higher ed has to change, is in a very a very tenuous place knowing that actually the traditional age college student, that population is reaching, they call it the cliff in 2026. And they're just not going to be as many 18 year olds at that point. Explain that. Just the cliff is just, just a demographic cliff of the number of people going to school. Correct. And so if your school is going to still exist, you can't count on the same number of 18 year olds applying to college in the next five years. You just can't. It's not going to happen. So either you have to be, either some of those places are going to (laughs) disappear, like the the colleges are going to disappear if they're dependent upon the 18-year-old, or you figure out how you're diversifying your student body so that you're not as dependent upon that age group, or you're just kind of at the top of the game so that every 18-year-old wants to come to your school. And I think that it means we all have to think about what that means for a higher education. I think it means we're going to have to risk 
in a way that we have not in higher ed. Risk in what sense? Well, I mean, if you're going to diversifying is a risk, trying to find your niche, that's also a risk. (laughs) You may or may not succeed in any of those things, you know? Mm -hmm. Did you add X, Y, and Z majors hoping more students would come? And turns out that's not the thing they're interested in. And I don't know about you, but I'm not great at identifying exactly what's going to draw in an 18-year-old <laughs> right, right. at any given time. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. And I do worry a little bit about what might draw in an 18-year-old, what might result in them being a satisfied, productive member of society. And those two things might be completely different. Yeah, exactly. I had a fellowship with the American Council on Education and was working with um, the senior staff at Rhodes College in Memphis. And I had a vice president that gave me such a great compliment. And he said, you're always thinking about what students need, not necessarily what they want, but what they need. (laughs) And I think that we have to balance what we think young people need to be productive, flourishing members of society, but also what they want so that they will come to us for what they need. (laughs) Right. 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 And that is a, that's a tricky balance. And when you're thinking about this cliff, and I know that there are other demographic trends, like I was reading recently about the percentage of women students in higher education is growing. So fewer boys are applying, and particularly in certain communities, it's even more stark a difference. When you think of all these demographic trends, what does that mean for liberal arts education, things like music education, arts education, or non-technical education? I mean, I'm a firm believer that a liberal arts education is, in most cases, the best education you could get because it makes you a better thinker (laughs) and that makes you more able to do whatever it is you want to do later on. And we've certainly seen businesses that have said, yeah, we want students that have had a liberal arts education. We know they're critical thinkers. We know they're good team players. We know they have learned something about communication. It's not the kind of education for everybody. So I -hmm. I think it's important that there are other opportunities. But I talk about how we have failed to teach people what the value of education is versus what training is. And so I think often people say, well, it seems like this could take less time and be cheaper. And I said, well, yes, training could take less time and be cheaper. (laughs) Education takes time. It takes time to draw somebody out. Educare, Mm -hmm. right? It takes time to do that, to, to allow people to grow into themselves in some way or another. It takes time. And that's what a liberal arts education does. So for me, I'd rather we explain to people why we why we should value a liberal arts education <laughs> so that right. people will then come for that. And I think, you know, Yale does a really good job in that way. And looking back on our time at Yale, are there particular experiences that you try to bring into your classroom or into your department or into your school? Ways of thinking, approaches? I mean, because... <laughs> Because my background was so diverse, you know, I was a, I was really a science math kid in high school. Mm-hmm. Most people that go to music school are not that. <laughs> right, it's right. It's just not where they where they live, right? And then I ended up with this interdisciplinary major, so I'm never looking at just the one discipline. I'm always kind of thinking, oh, I can imagine this in terms of 
the visual art of the period, or imagine this in terms of the religious shifts that were happening in this country at that time. And people who just spent 15 hours a day in the practice room don't do that. <laughs> right. They just don't. And so in that way, I'm a little bit of an outlier for a lot of music schools because most of my colleagues started in this field so much earlier than I did and started in a single-minded fashion that I never had. So, I mean, I, I bring that. I also look at the students and kind of go, eh, you know, try things out, try a bunch of other things. I certainly did. Yeah, right. <laughs> and there are a lot of professors who were like, what do you mean you wouldn't want to do music 24 hours a day? <laughs> I go, yeah, I actually still don't want to do music 24 hours a day. <laughs> Never did. (laughs) Oh, so what's on the horizon for you? What are the things that the projects you're working on now? You mentioned you've got some recordings that you've done. You know, when you look forward, what are the the challenges you want to tackle? Yeah, so that issue of diversifying the canon, I think, is really where I'm living these days. So I'm working, as I say, with Natural Association Teachers of Singing, thinking about how we do that. I am working with a a friend of mine who was an NAACP Image Award nominee, who's a poet here, and planning to commission a song cycle, actually talking about my experience through COVID and the loss of voice, sort of losing my breathing in a lot of ways. Did you lose your voice? I didn't exactly. I just sort of didn't sing much. (laughs) Right. I didn't breathe as well. That's really just... Because of COVID? You had COVID? No, I didn't. I just felt like the stress of everything made me not take as deep a breath. And it was funny because I thought, oh, this is just me. Then I talked to a friend of mine who said, oh, yeah, my wife experienced the same thing. And breathing is the basis of singing. So as soon as you know you're not breathing well, you can be sure you won't sing well. Hmm. And I thought, oh, this is all of this is subpar, (laughs) right? The stress of this and it's just so much. And so in a way, when a singer isn't singing, that feels like a loss of voice, because that, of course, is how you express yourself. So how did you work through that? I would say I still am. And in a way, planning on on the song cycle is a way to work through it, a way to reclaim my voice. I'm like, I'm just going to reclaim it. And I'm going to reclaim it as entirely mine and not somebody else's experience. And in trying to get new songs out there, you are also diversifying the canon. When -hmm. you get new songs, new composer, but also an experience that people aren't talking about, that's, you know, how you get the stories that are different from the ones that are out there now. So, I, I mean, I just kept saying to myself, how do I reclaim my voice? How do I reclaim my voice? And once I came up with the idea of working with a poet and working with a composer, I said, all right, I think that's how I'm going to do that. So that's how I've worked. That sounds exciting. I'm super excited about it. I don't know how it's all going to work out. (laughs) Well, that's what's exciting about it. I mean, any adventure, if you know how it's going to work out, it's not terribly adventurous. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I'm working on that. I'm, uh, I'm trying to figure out what's next, what's in the next chapter all around. Yeah. I think that's probably one of the projects. Those are really the two projects that I'm, that I'm thinking about the most these days. How do we get those other stories told? How do we be more inclusive in all ways in what it means to be a musician, what it means to be an artist, what it means to be an academic? How do we honor what especially young people are bringing to the table 
and also give them some some tools for the future. And I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Yeah, it is. Um, I do it in a different context, thinking about the return to work and really what do people want? What do people need? How do you mentor someone? And listening to young people because they have different ideas and know how to use tools. We all have the same basic tools, but phones and technology, but you know, they use them differently. Yeah. So interesting. What's funny, I was talking to a classmate who said they work with younger people in their company and they said, well, you know, I'm not sure how they're going to create community in this when they're so isolated. And I was like, oh yeah, they, <laughs> you don't realize they were already committing, creating community in this way before we ever had COVID, right? They know how to do that. We just didn't know how to do that. <laughs> well, we as a species have been doing it for millennia and they do it slightly differently. It actually, at the end of the day, usually boils down to, you know, like a fire at night or some gathering area, some music, <laughs> maybe a drink or two and just being together. So I don't think it's all that complex. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's true. So, it's true. so we've gotten to the part of the podcast that we call our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions and see how we do here. Is there a piece of music that you think encapsulates your feelings about your time at Yale? About my time at Yale? I got nothing. You got nothing. <laughs> I'm like, All right. really? So it's not like you're going to swing bright college years and say, oh my goodness, that really speaks to me as a piece of music. No, not really. because, you know, that's... I'm so sorry, but that's dead white men for me. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I, that's why I asked the question. It's 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 interesting because I have, we have a son at a big state school, and part of the bringing people in is singing the songs, and like that's a big part of like community building. And it's interesting that that part of the Yale tradition didn't speak to you. And it's not a surprise, I suppose, but um, it's interesting. I think it's unfair. I actually do think I have an answer because I have sung it so often. I'm like, how did Ride the Chariot not come to me? (laughs) (laughs) Because I sang that solo when I was in the Glee Club, and then I continued to sing it in the Yale Alumni Chorus. I've taken it all over the world. So in some ways, that does encapsulate my experience at at Yale because the singing community is so important to me. But also, it, it does straddle that those racial issues, right? Because it's technically a spiritual, but pretty much it, so many people in the Glee Club were not African-American and trying to figure out how you use your own experience as an African-American and, and also navigating how do you be the Black person that's singing something more than just spirituals. I did all of that Yale through that, that one solo. So I should have said that immediately. That's fine. Well, we're going to scrap the lightning round for a second because what you said was, I find very interesting. One of our kids actually sang in her school's gospel choir because the gospel choir was not just for African-American students. Yeah. And I thought those concerts were unbelievably moving. Yeah. Yeah. So so what what do you think about as far as representation? Can someone who's not an African-American meaningfully participate in the singing of a traditional African-American spiritual? For me, that's a no-brainer. I have to say yes, because otherwise my singing of Schubert and Mozart is not legitimate, right? (laughs) I don't come from that tradition. So I say great music is great music. It's universal. It moves people. It It speaks to people in a way that nothing else can, and everybody should be able to participate in great music making. I think that's the point 
as I, I hear you are listening to you, of your desire to diversify. It's not to have a particular skin color next to a person's name on a piece of paper. It's to share a story. So the artistic world is richer because it has the richness of the entire human experience. That's sort of what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. And that's really nicely articulated. So thank you for that. I feel exactly that. I often feel like people believe diversifying is offering merely offering a seat at the table to people that don't look like you. But to me, the real value of diversity is that makes all of us stronger and richer. All of us, not me, but I mean, it does me, but it does you too, right? I'm an ideas person. I come up with ideas pretty readily, but I always say all of my ideas are made better by other people. <laughs> like I don't have to own them. I just have to start there and talk to other people and go, oh yeah, now it's better. <laughs> I just started someplace. So I want more people at the table so that all of our ideas become stronger, richer, more interesting in every way. Well, I cannot think of a better note on which to end this podcast. This has been such a great conversation. I really hope to see you at our reunion in June. Thank you. You know, I've never attended a reunion, so this might be the first one. I hope it is. I hope it is. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to see all these people that I've heard on your podcast. So thank you for having me.